Listen, uh, good morning to all of you. My name is Rudy, and I'm pretty sure I'm seeing everyone here that kind of like knows me. But if you're new to the Rock Church or you're joining in online for the very first time, I'm one of the elders here at the Rock Church together with uh, Pastor Glenn, together with uh, Matt Davies, who's also kind of like heading into a period of where he's taking a break from eldership. Uh, they are currently celebrating, of course, uh, the birth of their fourth daughter, Sybil. Hey, we can rejoice in that. That's just amazing news. Uh, Sybil was born last week. Uh, no, sorry, Sunday. Sunday evening, I believe, or su- Sunday afternoon. And everything is going well. But uh, together with Glenn and Kevin and Matt and then a bunch of other people that are um, going to go through the scores um, to follow God's calling on our lives. And uh, on that note, I just wanted to, I was sitting here listening to, um, you know, us officially thanking Daryl and Adrian. And this verse came to my mind, First uh, Peter 5, verses 1 to 3, says this, uh, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And I just wanted to reiterate that, that that is, uh, in essence, that's the call of an elder. It's not, you know, we're talking about meetings, meetings, eldership is not meetings. Eldership is shepherding God's people. Looking after the flock. It's, it's being a shepherd. It's, it's doing it out of a place of humility. Being an example. And it's, as Daryl pointed out, not easy. But uh, there are many, many guys already at the Rock Church that are doing that. And, and those are the people that, that God calls to shepherd his flock. So I just felt like I wanted to uh, emphasize that this morning. And yeah, we're, we're still trusting and praying for this next season as we are transitioning into a new season, new leadership and, and guidance and oversight over the church. With that being said, I also have a quick little announcement about my, myself and my family. We're doing well. My kids are currently, man, they're sick. They are struggling to recover from a, a middle ear infection. Okay. Uh, <laughs> where was that coming from? Okay, was that from upstairs? All right, anyways, um, they are covering from a middle ear infection, and uh, it's a, a tricky time. I'm not sure with how many people I've shared this, but uh, me and my family, we will be looking to travel to South Africa in this next coming week. Um, as I shared previously, my mother passed away uh, two months ago. Is it now? October? Yeah, two months ago in the middle of July. Uh, of course, I wasn't able to go and visit my family but I was able to lead via Zoom the celebration of life. It was a fantastic online gathering. But um, together with that, we just have an opportunity to go visit there for the whole of November, basically, because Jean has uh, an opportunity to get a locum doctor that can take over a practice in that time. And so, yeah, I just asked Glenn if that was a possibility and the elders, and I've been graciously being able to, to go. So, you will not see me then for after the Sunday for a while, but I'll be with you uh, most probably tuning in online 
and uh, in spirit. And uh, if you are in need of contacting me, you can do so via WhatsApp. But I'm uh, trying to not look at my phone for the first two or three weeks when I'm there. Okay. Um, but I just wanted to give you guys a heads up on that. Because um, another thing that came to my mind here as we were uh, listening to Glenn talk about eldership and, and looking at Daryl and Adrian. Uh, you know, I just uh, had the sense of this morning, it really feels like family, and this is a family. The Rock Church, uh, this expression of God's church, this little community, this is family. It's supposed to be family. There's, of course, new people coming on Sunday mornings, checking us out. But in general, I'm going to encourage us, man, we need to just relax and just take it easy because we're family. But we know also family is messy, Okay. <laughs> If you have gone to family gatherings, big family gatherings, there's always something going on. There's someone who's got a fence with that guy or the dad that has now done this or not done that. And so that's what family is all about. It's about dealing with that, that brothers and sisters have, you know, we have conflict. But over, overall, the love of God reigns. And if we're motivated, motivated by love and God's love that's been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, then that love overlooks a multitude of sins and offenses and just little things. And I want to encourage us as a church to really start thinking about that more, that Sunday mornings is a family gathering. It's that big family barbecue where people come and people volunteer to bring something to that big barbecue. Okay? It's a fragrant offering to the Lord. Does that make sense? Right? Because that's, that's kind of like what we're aiming for. We're aiming to create an atmosphere that is pleasing to God. And what is pleasing to Him is, you know, his people coming together and the Holy Spirit being welcome and, and just ministering to us and us enjoying His presence. Sorry, that was the thing that I was just thinking about and praying about to get started. Okay, amen. Here we go. Listen, as you can see, I'm excited this morning, man. Um, like, I, I am excited, okay? I'm excited because we're in a, like I'm sharing about my family, my kids are sick. Uh, John and I are, uh, our stress levels are really high, okay? If, if you've had little kids or if you have little kids, you know that together with that and work and things going on in your life, that's, you know, leading to a lot of stress. And then together with that, having to or wanting to travel to South Africa, the, the stress is just escalating because now if we have any symptoms before we fly or if we test positive for COVID-19, then of course we have to make different arrangements. But we're in a position where we need to really trust God. We're coming to the end of ourselves in what we can do out of our own power. And that is what today is all about. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 2. And you will be really happy to know that I'm going to be teaching through the whole of chapter 2. Amen. Okay? Yeah, because we have spent five sermons on chapter 1. With, with a good reason though. The structure has been um, orchestrated or planned in that way because there was so much to unpack in chapter 1. But now chapter 2, 3, and 4 is going to be three sermons. And in chapter 2, in the book of Jonah, and you can turn there, uh, we're going to look now at Jonah's response of where he is in the belly of the fish. We know now he has been on the boat. The boat was rocked by the storm that God uh, orchestrated to show that he was sovereignly putting measures in place to chase down Jonah, to pursue him, to call him back to his calling so that he can obey. And so we're going to pick up there in chapter 2. I'm, I'm going to actually start at the end of chapter 1, verse 17. 
And uh, you can turn there on your app or in your Bible. And I'm going to read for us. And then we're going to jump in and unpack it. It says there in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of, uh, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up uh, me forever, or upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Let us just pray before we get started this morning. Yeah, Father God, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy again, Lord. We thank you that we can... Come to you as your children. We can come to you as your family. And Abba Father, we thank you that we can ask your help. We can ask your spirit to, to come and speak and minister to us. And so I ask that, Lord, as, as your servant, come and speak, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's title is Saving Grace. Saving Grace. And... I'm going to look to show us three ways in which we can live in God's saving grace and combat self-righteousness. Those three ways are to remember what you are saved from, to remember who saved you, and remember what you are saved to. Remember what you're saved from, remember who saves you, and remember what you are saved to. Now I was thinking and praying about, again, how to start the message. And again, listen, a, a movie comes to my mind. The previous occasion, there was a movie that kept on mind. That was uh, uh, The Born Identity. And lo and behold, another movie by, uh, that starred Matt Damon comes to my mind. Saving Private Ryan. How many of you remember that movie? 1998, I know many of you were not even born yet. And I'm starting to realize how old I'm getting, 38. The saving Private Ryan, that's it exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, starring Matt Damon and Tom Hanks. Now, what a fantastic movie. It's, it's regarded as one of the all-time war movies or greats by Steven Spielberg. And, and what I remember about this movie and what struck me, of course, about this movie as I reflected upon it is once again to go and read up the summary of the movie. What is it about? Now, Saving Private Ryan is about the Second World War and specifically on June 6, 1944, when it was D-Day and the Normandy invasion. 
and how a captain, um, his name is, now I've lost his name there, uh, Captain John H. Miller, played by Tom Manx, he is then ordered by Washington, D.C. to go and look for one of four brothers who are still fighting in the war and believed to be alive because his three other brothers had been killed. And so there was a policy in place that if that's the situation, if there were families involved in the war and brothers like that, then if there was a survivor and all of the other family members or the brothers were killed, that they need to go and try and find that brother and take him back to his family in the United States. And so that is then this officer, this private, James Francis Ryan, and he's, his character is played by Matt Damon. And the whole story is about how this captain leads this squad to go and find this missing brother. And they encounter extreme danger. It's a war zone, right? It's, it's the Nazis that they're fighting against. And it reminded me, of course, of the story of Jonah. Because this captain and his squad, they get a mission to go find their, this lost brother. And Jonah's mission is a mission to go find lost brothers and sisters of Nineveh. Now you might be thinking, oh, Rudy, you must be crazy because we know the Ninevites were the, they're the Taliban. It's ISIS. How on earth can you say they are brothers and sisters of Jonah, of the Israelites? Are you out of your mind? Well, what's really interesting is if you go back in the Bible, this is why I believe we believe it is God's word. It's, it's his inspired word. And it gives us a record of where the origins of man comes from. If you look in Genesis and you, you look at the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And then after Adam and Eve, has sin, in, sin enters the world and people rebel and do what they want to do and decide for themselves what is, what is right or wrong. Then that evil increases up to the point where God says, okay, listen, I've got to start over. I'm choosing one man in his family, jo uh, um, Noah. Sorry, I wanted to say Jonah. Noah. And he chooses Noah and his family. And then he sends a flood to basically start over. So the wrath of God is poured out. But Noah then is saved from the flood through the ark. And then they start repopulating the earth. And then out of Noah comes the different people groups. And Noah has three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can go and read about it in Genesis 10. But do you know who the tribes are or the people groups are that come out of the firstborn, Shem? They are collectively called the Semites. Semitic. Have you ever heard that term? Anti-Semitic. You hear about it a lot in politics and it's normally associated with people that are anti-Jewish or anti-Israel. Well, Semitic or the, the Semites are actually five different people groups. They were the Hebrews, the Chaldeans. The Assyrians, the Persians, and the Syrians. All those people groups in the Middle East came from Shem. In other words, they were the brothers of the Hebrews. They were actually related. But in the end, the, the whole picture, the overarching picture, the big idea that I want to submit to you is that in the end, all of us are actually related, if we can trace it back, what, to, to who? To one man, Adam. And so Jonah 
is faced with this prospect that, hey, listen, God actually wants you to go and find the lost brothers, the, the lost people that need to be brought back into the family of God. And Jonah reacts in a self-righteous way. He tries to run from God's presence. And it's a picture of how we in the church, if we have put our faith in Jesus and we have been justified and how we have now been declared as righteous and holy before God, how we can easily fall into that same trap where we forget about the mission that it is about bringing brothers and sisters home into a family. That is the mission of God. This, that is what church is all about. It's about bringing lost people in who are actually your brother and sister. They have just not been adopted. But our, our problem is that we do what Jesus talks about in Luke 18. We become very quickly self-righteous, forgetting. We forget how we got to be adopted into God's family. We become like the Pharisee who prays. He's standing and he's, he's praying to God and he says, I thank God that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. Now listen to this in verse 12 of, of Luke 18. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But I highlighted there the Pharisees' response that Jesus reminds us of is what we need to watch out. That yeast, it's that, that leaven that so quickly infiltrates us. It's a teaching and a belief of self-righteousness. It's I fast, I give, I get. It's all about the me, it's about I. And that's the attitude that Jonah has towards the enemies of God or the, the ones that he supposedly think he thinks they are, they are out of grasp for God's grace to get a hold of them. And we need to watch out for that. And, and that is what this morning is all about. So, it's about grace. This morning's topic is how to live in God's saving grace, to stay in His saving grace, and to let the saving grace of God by His Spirit sanctify us so that we run this race till the very end without relying on our own works. It's, it's, never, it's never worked. It will never work. And so the first remedy to this issue of self-righteousness and to stay in God's saving grace, I'm going to put up uh, before you, is to remember what you were saved from. Jonah 2 verses 1 to 5. Let's quickly have a look what he, he prays. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying the following. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of shale. So in other words, this shale is this term for the underworld, death. And you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. That is what he prays from the belly of the fish. That is what he prays from this place where there's no other way out. He's, he's tried everything. He's tried to run away. He was in the boat. He sovereignly God points 
out that, hey, listen, you can't get away from my presence. And he tells them that, listen, for the, the storm to go away and for this to stop, throw me overboard. And so he's done all of that. And we're not entirely sure what, what, what was Jonah thinking. Was he thinking that, okay, throw me overboard and this is it. I'm dying. I'm dead. Or did he do it out of faith, trusting that God will provide a means for him to be saved? But what's really interesting is, if you look at his prayer, and if you watch that movie, Saving Private Ryan, there's a lot connected there with the opening scene of the movie where there is an elderly man who is at a war cemetery and he's walking there with his family and he comes to a grave and he is overcome with emotion and the camera zooms into his face and the tears are pouring down and then he starts remembering. He remembers the war. He remembers how he was saved. And I believe the prayers of Jonah is, is like that, where he is in the belly of the fish. He remembers all of a sudden what he is saved from. He doesn't have a memory problem when he's at his end. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with memory. I struggle to remember things, especially on the short term, especially the things that my wife has on the to-do list. <laughs> okay, Those things I... Quite easily, you know, can forget. Are you in the same boat? Okay. <laughs> and I was listening to a preacher this week, John Tyson from Church in the City in New York, and he was talking about this topic, and I'm borrowing some of the things that he said in this sermon. But he was talking about the fact that we are living in a day and age where our brains are being rewired because of technology, because of social media, and because of the fact that instantaneously, with instant gratification, we can so quickly get all the information we want, and there's really little need to memorize something. And it's creating new neuropathways in our brain, which, lead, which leads to the fact that we actually start losing memory a lot more faster than in the past. But it's not really something that's new because in the 1880s there was research done by a German psychologist, Hermann Ebbinghaus, and he came up with two graphs. Or the research that he did uh, brought him to the conclusion that, listen, there is a forgetting or a forgetfulness that happens within us or with our brains. And, and I'm going to throw the first graph up on there. The first one shows kind of like at what speed or rate we start forgetting what we learn. If on the left or on the y-axis, you've got your percentage information that can be retained, and at the bottom x-axis, you've got time. As time goes by, and, and you have learned something new, or you've listened to a sermon like today, if it's not being reviewed or thought about afterwards, very rapidly, the amount of information that is retained decreases. And he actually mentions that research says that within the first six days after having received information, if it's not reviewed again, by day six, you generally only remember 25% of what you learned, which is devastating to us as preachers, because if we get to the community group on Wednesday and Thursday, and you ask, hey, so why was the sermon? And it's like crickets, and you're like, okay, I got to remember the forgetting curve here, okay? But the next curve, 
shows us what happens if we review new information. So if the original learning happens with that first curve and it slants from left to right, then with the first review, you can see that as time goes by, the information that is retained increases by second, third. Look at that third curve. If you review something for the third time, you retain it. You memorize it. You have it. You can take that off, Monica. And the point here is that we forget very quickly the word of God and what God has said and what he has done. And Tyson says that for discipleship and for us to live in the saving grace of God, what is crucial for that is to remember who God is and what he has done. And so Jonah... I really find it fascinating that when he prays, he's praying words that I believe, if I go and look at Scripture, is not just something that he is coming up with and describing by himself. Because listen to these verses out of the Psalms. The first one, Psalm 42, verse 7, says, Deep calls out to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have come over me. Psalm 88 verse 6 to 7 says the following. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Believe that is David that wrote that. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath is heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves. Psalm 31 verse 22 says, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard my voice or the voice of my pleas for my mercy. Uh, for mercy when I cried for you for help. And Psalm 69 verses 1 to 2 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. It sounds like Jonah. And I've, I believe that if we look at how Jonah prays, I believe he's come to the end of himself and what he remembers is... God's truth, who God is, and what has been written and said about God. And even if it's not just the Psalms that he remembers, think about him just remembering and being forced. He's at the end of himself, no way out, in the belly of a fish. What does he have to remember or think about? The origins of Israel. How Israel was set free from Egypt. How were they set free? They had to cross through what? Water. Through the Red Sea. And God provided for them by separating the seas, splitting it, they could walk through it. But then what did God do? His wrath came upon the Egyptians finally when the waters closed down. So I believe Jonah is remembering this. And he is talking in terms of he knows that he is being saved from God's wrath through this saving grace in the form of a whale. You see, the, the first step in actually guarding ourselves against self-righteousness and guarding ourselves against living this Christian life through our own means and our own strength is that we have to remember God's grace is enough. But God's grace comes to us 
to save us from Him. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to land into the hands of a holy God. And we tend to forget that. We tend to forget that God is holy, that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. And the wrath of God is upon us if we're not in Christ because of sin. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so Jonah's prayer is a response of being thankful because he's being saved from that. He's being saved from the wrath of God that was actually upon, coming upon him in that boat. And that's the wrath of God that we are saved from if we're in Christ, if we have put our faith in Jesus. And then Jonah says in verse 4, But yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Which leads us to the second remedy for self-righteousness or living in the saving grace of God. That is to remember who saved you or saves you. So after Jonah goes through this emotional remembrance, like that elderly man in Saving Private Ryan in the opening scene and remembering all of, of, of these situations in life that he was so close to death, yet Jonah remembers that he is, needs to turn to God's temple. In verses 6 to 7 we read, Jonah pray on and he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Timothy Keller puts it in his book, Prodigal Prophet, that there's a saying that goes, You never realize all you need is Jesus until Jesus is all you've got. You never realize all you need is Jesus until Jesus is all you've got. You see, Jonah had tried to figure out everything by himself now. He was thinking, listen, I don't want to go and find these lost brothers and sisters. I had a retirement plan. I'm getting on that boat to Tarshish. I can start a little coffee shop ministry there. I can reach people for Jesus. That Surely is in line with God's heart. I know the people in Tarshish are lost. They don't know Jesus. And even when it's absolutely clear to Jonah that he's not getting away from God, he still doesn't follow or do what even the pagans on the ship cause him to do. He doesn't pray. He doesn't respond. Only until he is at the end of himself. And in this prayer, we then finally see what God's grace, and, and God's grace or grace means undeserved favor, what that undeserved favor looks like. When a man comes to the end of himself, when you're unable to get yourself out of a situation, 
And his response is that his only option is to turn to the temple of God. Now, why does he do that? Well, he realizes, of course, that that is where God's presence is. Or the representation of God's presence through the ark. And the ark, on top of the ark, there is a, a gold slab. Which is called the mercy seat. And of course, he will remember that once a year, the high priest has to enter into this holiest of holy places. And go and sprinkle the blood of a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. Once a year. To temporarily cover them so that God can forgive them and so that they can come into his presence and not be obliterated by his holiness. And it's an image of God's holy and perfect law that cannot be met by man. And what is needed is God himself that provides an atoning sacrifice, a way that people can have a living relationship with him. It's all about relationship. Now, Jonah would not have known, and, and in that time, that this was actually a foreshadowing and a painting of the, the picture that would come and the actual historic event of the coming of Jesus Christ, who would then become that final atoning sacrifice. The Bible talks about he was the propitiation, the substitution for all of the sins of the whole world once and for all. Never again will it be needed for blood to be, be basically sprinkled, for a sacrifice to be made. So on this side of the cross, we know that that is what it was showing us. And that is what Jonah is thinking about. He turns towards God's presence and he's like, I need you now. Like I've never needed you before. And it brings us to that fact that, as J.I. Packer puts it, that every person needs to come to the realization that there are three grace truths. That we are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. We can only be saved through the extreme and costly measures of God. We can only be saved by God himself. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6 says this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. That's the only way. It's only God. We need to remember that it is only Him. Because even when we have been in church for our whole life, or maybe have a relationship with Jesus, we need to be reminded of this, that yes, my identity is now in Christ, I'm a new creation, but it's only God that can do the work within me. It's only Him by Spirit that sanctifies me through His Word. And so that second remedy for self-righteousness is we need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to come to that point where we realize that if I'm not in God's mercy and grace. If I'm not reliant on him to do it. All I'm doing is I'm being self-righteous. I'm not living in that saving grace. Which takes us finally 
to the last remedy or the last way we can live in God's saving grace. And it is to remember what you are saved to. Jonah prays the following, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He ends with a prayer and a shout, a declaration of where his only true hope lies. He, make note, he makes note of the fact that no hope or steadfast love, in other words, man's access to the common grace of God, will be accessible to you if you rely on idols, vain idols. And it's only in the mercy and grace provided by God. Now, unfortunately in our day and age, in our culture, this idea goes against the grain of all philosophies. It goes against the, the grain of the current spirit of the age. We live in a current spirit and an age where we're encouraged to look within yourself, to find your true self. Look within yourself to find happiness. And you will find it in your self-help books and your seminars by Tony Robbins. The answer lies within yourself. The answer lies within humanity. It's the secular humanist view or worldview that says that we will come up with our own salvation. Man is the answer to all of life's issues and biggest questions. But the end result of such thinking and those beliefs, I believe we are experiencing it and seeing it all the more in our culture and being, it's being manifested especially in young people. Statistics show that especially now after or during or we're still in this pandemic, Depression and anxiety levels are as high as it's ever been, especially amongst youth and young people. But it should be no wonder because if, if all that we're bombarding our young people with is that they have their origins out of nowhere, it was just by chance, and there's absolutely no purpose to life but finding your own happiness within yourself, and you are the greatest, and, and all of you are equally entitled to a medal if you participate in a race. There are no winners. There are no losers. Everyone can, can get a medal because you're just, you know, we're just, everyone is equal. And you can just chase your dreams and become who you want to become because that is within you. That's, that's, that's what you need to chase. Then when a storm comes like the pandemic and the world's boat is shaken, then no wonder we see a world that is all of a sudden saying, what on earth is going on? Because what's being propagated and what's being thrown out to us are the, idol the, the idols, the, the, the philosophies, the ideas of relativism, moral relativism. You choose what is right or wrong. It's the same lie. And it does not save us. In fact, it only creates more and more anxiety. My wife is a medical doctor. 
When we moved to Canada, we landed in Williams Lake. She practiced there for seven years. She really enjoyed the practice there, seeing a lot of people that had genuine needs, illnesses. But here in Squamish, she will testify to the fact that the majority of the patients that she sees, they are Squamish, they are healthy, they run, they hike, they ski, they recreate. But you know what is their biggest issue? Anxiety. How is that possible? Squamish is, this is my best life, isn't it? If you ask someone, how are you doing here in Squamish? Oh, I'm living the dream. Oh, really? How is it possible? I believe it's because we have forgotten. We do not remember the saving grace of God. We do not remember what we are saved to. As Christians, we have forgotten what we are saved to. We are saved from the wrath of God, by God, to God, for God's mission. To bring brothers and sisters back. Those that we deem to be the outcasts, not worthy of grace and mercy. Those who construct their identities through social means. We very quickly jump on a pedestal and say, I am that Pharisee. Oh Lord, thank you. I'm not like that person who has constructed their identity out of social preferences and ideas. But you see, the message of the gospel is the only message with the power to set people free. It's the only way that we can be saved and live in the grace of God. The amazing news is this, that Jesus Christ saves us so that we can have a living relationship with God Almighty, with the Father. And it is that picture to bring us back into His family, to adopt us, to make us one with Him through His body. And what it is all about is, it's a picture of God wanting to take that burden off of us. Of thinking we can work towards being in a relationship with Him. It is this picture in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Jesus says this. It's an invitation. Come to me, all. All who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that is what we see with Jonah. He comes to that place where he's got no other choice. He's been saved in the belly of a fish. He's not out of the woods yet. He's not out of the deep waters yet. But then we read God's grace is then carried out in verse 10 where it says, it's not on screen, the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Salvation comes from the Lord. If you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Jesus, 
but you do not constantly remember what you were saved from, who saved you and what you are saved to, the mission of God and in relationship with God. You are in desperate need of God's saving grace through His Spirit to bring renewal to your life. You need the whale to spit you out. You need your religion to spit you out so that you have a living relationship with Jesus. Because otherwise you're just going to sit in the belly of the fish and you might be praying and you might be calling out to God, but if it's not out of a place where you're at the end of yourself, the whale will not spit you out and you cannot go to Nineveh. You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking here figuratively. Everyone with me? Wakey, wakey. <laughs> this is incredibly important. In conclusion, I'm going to share with you out of my life, when I was a young man, how I too, like Jonah, I tried to win God's favor out of my own works. At the age of 19, first year university, man, I was struggling with so many issues, lacking purpose, knowing where I was going. Was I going to complete this degree that I'd started at university? And by the end of that year, this was 2002, I was empty. I'd been partying that year, barely making my classes and courses. But by the end of that year, I was back at it with old friends from my old hometown. And man, we were clubbing it. I was getting drunk. I was driving under the influence of alcohol. And I lived a life that I tried to find satisfaction in. To the extent that I did an immoral act that was contrary to a vow that I had made through promise keepers that early that year who came to our university. And you know what? I was distraught. I felt so disappointed in myself. But I didn't know God's grace. Even though I was professing to be a Christian and I had periodically gone to church and had grown up in a Christian home, I had no clue about my identity. And you know what my action was, what I tried to do? I said to myself, I'm going to please God. He's going to forgive me if I can do this one thing, if I can fast for one day. I had a mindset that I realized God is not pleased with what I've done. I need to do something to atone for this. So I did it. I fasted for two hours that morning. I could only do it until 11 a.m. But you know what that did even more? Is I failed even at that? Do you know how low I sank? Because even the standard that I decided out of nowhere that this is how I'm going to please God, I failed at it. What to say about God's standards? How much do I fail at that? And the long and the short is God provided me a whale or a fish, in the form of my wife, Jean, and she was my saving grace. She started, she started taking me to church. I started seeing, I, this was scary, man. I saw in her that she loved Jesus. She knew Jesus. I was so scared that she was going to leave me because I had asked her, listen, what are you going to do if God tells you you need to leave me? And she said, well, I have to be obedient to him. And that freaked me out. 
And so I started attending church with her. And as I started more and more listening to the word of God and to his spirit speaking to me, I came to the realization that I had nothing to offer God. I had to come to the end of myself and totally surrender and receive God's grace. I had to respond to a call at a church meeting where the pastor said, listen, if this is you, come to the front. And at the age of 23, I did that. And that's my invitation to us this morning. I want to invite you to consider this where you're at. My sense this morning is that we have a lot of burdens that are being carried by ourselves and that I know of, but I don't know all of your situations. And I just, I just sense God wants to set you free this morning from that yoke you're carrying. And I don't know if, Glenn, if we've ever done an altar call here at the Rock Church, but I just sense this morning, God wants to do something new in all of us. And this is an opportunity for us not just to say, Oh, Rudy, <laughs> great message. Let's pack up the cheese and go. I'm going to say, let me not say what I was thinking now. But I want to say, let's forget that. Let us spend time with God. I want to invite the worship band to come to the front. And I want to make an altar call. Here's that picture of the Old Testament and in the temple, an altar where you came and you brought a sacrifice. But I want to also say an altar call in the sense of this is an opportunity to alter your life. Alter as in an alteration. And I know many of you always, this is our, I'm a Canadian too. This is our, our culture here in Canada. We say, no, Rudy, it's okay. I'm going to go review your sermon. I'm going to read the Bible at home this week. I will respond. Listen, it doesn't work like that. We don't do it. When God provides you with an opportunity to get out of the belly of a fish, grab it with both hands. 